It's Philosophy Talk. Do you believe in the existence of extraterrestrials? Is there a man on the moon? Is there life on Mars? If E.T. phones home, will anybody be there to pick up? CQ, CQ, this is W9GFO. Is anybody out there? In the vastness of the entire cosmos, is it really possible that Earth is the only planet with life? Do you think there's people on other planets? I don't know, Sparks. But I guess I'd say, if it is just us, it seems like an awful waste of space. How are discovering evidence of life in the cosmos affect how we live our lives here on Earth? You ever had the suspicion that you've been abducted by aliens? Can we still maintain that we alone are made in the image and likeness of God? Our guest is Paul Davies, author of The Eerie Silence, renewing our search for alien intelligence. Are we alone? I want to be alone. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Hi, I'm Josh Lampy. And I'm Ray Briggs. Thanks for downloading this episode of Philosophy Talk. Did you know we've got a library of more than 500 episodes over at our website? Yeah, at philosophytalk.org, we question everything. Except your intelligence. From Aristotle to Zeno, from anarchy to Zen. Become a subscriber today at philosophytalk.org. And now, on with the show. Are we alone in the universe? Or is the cosmos teeming with life? What difference would it make if we found the answer? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. And I'm Josh Landy. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where I teach philosophy and Josh directs the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today we're asking, are we alone? It's the eighth and final episode in our series, A Philosophical Guide to the Cosmos. Josh, I, I can't believe it. We just can't be alone. We can't be. Look, some people estimate that there may be as many as 100 billion planets or even more in the Milky Way. So there just has to be life out there somewhere, maybe even intelligent life. Maybe, maybe not. We're never going to know either way. I mean, get, look, the universe is enormous. I mean, given that and, and the laws of physics, it's a pretty sure bet E.T. isn't about to ring your doorbell any day soon. <laughs> well, Josh, Josh, maybe not. But I think you're way too hung up on the limits of current technology. Oh, oh so you're imagining warp drive like in Star Trek? Or, I don't know, maybe. Maybe jumps through hyperspace like, like in Star Wars. That's cool. That stuff's not real, Ken. Not now, Josh. Well, probably not ever. Well, tell that to early humans who gazed out over a vast ocean and imagined unknown realms that they might someday reach. Or, or, or to the first people who looked longingly to the sky with dreams of flight. I mean, who's to say, Josh, we'll never find evidence of life on other worlds? Well, even if we could find evidence, why should we care? Oh, Josh, come on. What? what? Well, look, it would have no practical significance. I, I've got no objection to you letting your imagination run wild. I mean, look, I'm a literature guy. I, I love made-up stories. I I'm just saying... Don't lose sight of what really matters. And that would be? That would be life here on Earth. We've got a ton of work to do. We've got diseases to cure, social wrongs to right, an environment to save. Okay, Josh, look, look, I'm going to grant all that, but even those oh-so-practical problems require an unrestrained imagination, and that's what we're talking about here. Okay, but spending great sums of money, and that's also what we're talking about, on the tiny hope. There might be life out there somewhere, life we almost certainly will never meet, even if it does exist. That seems 
Scandal. Scandalous? Oh, come on, Josh. The discovery of alien life, any kind of life, microbes, mice, or, or little green men, especially little green men, would be one of the most impactful discoveries in the history of humankind. Right up there with Copernicus, right up there with Darwin. It would change everything, Josh. Everything? Even the color of my couch? Well, okay, maybe not the color of your couch. Okay, <laughs> I grant you that. But it would. Definitely alter our understanding of ourselves and our place in the universe. Uh, just think of Christianity. Take one example. is It teaches us that we are made in the image and likeness of God, that we're central, oh so central to the divine plan. But if it turns out that the universe is teeming with intelligent life, well, then we're just bit players in the great scheme of things after all, Josh. Yeah, but don't we know that already? I mean, don't we already know that we inhabit one small planet around one insignificant star in one galaxy in a universe that contains untold numbers of other galaxies and stars and, and yeah, sure, planets too. And you're, you're not seriously trying to tell me that you're not even the least bit curious about all those other planets. Well, a little bit, but I, I just can't see why it's worth spending the resources it would take to find out about them. I mean, whether we're all alone in the universe or whether it's as crowded with life as you hope, human beings are still going to live and love and fight and die just the same as we always have done. Yeah, yeah, Josh, but come on. Just suppose that evolution has had a million different chances on a million different planets to do its thing and to design intelligent life. Wouldn't that blow your mind? Wouldn't you want to know? How humans compare to other intelligent life forms, like for whether we're at the pinnacle or the nadir of all that evolution? Well, that's the question, Ken. I mean, look, suppose someday we do manage to make contact with advanced aliens. Think about it from their point of view. Uh, after all their efforts to reach us, all the excitement and wonder about the possible wisdom they might gain, all they end up with is... Us. Oh, do, do you really want to be around to witness their cosmic disappointment? <laughs> oh, gosh, Josh. Well, you, you got me there. Touche, <laughs> touche. But I do love the way you're thinking about this now. Well, don't get too carried away. I, I, I still doubt this kind of thing will ever actually happen. But but I am willing to concede that this debate is an important and long-standing one, and, and you and I aren't going to settle it right this minute. Well, and you know, for some Earthlings, dreams of alien encounters are more than just thought experiments. So we sent our non-alien roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDee, to talk to some of those seekers. She files this report. People have considered life outside Earth for thousands of years. Greek philosophers as far back as the 3rd century BC believed in parallel universes. Author Katie Haney remembers making contact with extraterrestrials as an 8-year-old growing up in Minnesota. Sort of. I do have this memory of having seen a UFO that I am not at all sure is a real memory and may very well be a dream. She watched the sky for signs of aliens and yearned for proof they were out there. I would tell my dad, like, I wanted to see a UFO or, or wanted, you know, there to be something confirmed so badly. He would, A, make fun of me and B, say, you know, it's never gone well for the existing civilization someplace when another civilization comes to visit them. Tucker to Captain Archer. Go ahead. We're not alone down here. We're on our way. But even if we're all alone, Haney certainly isn't the only one who believes UFO sightings may be connected to outside galaxies. In the late 1940s, some kind of flying object crashed near Roswell, New Mexico. By the late 70s, Area 51 had become the subject of conspiracy theories, 
Aliens soon invaded popular culture with films like Star Wars, E.T., Space Odyssey, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And by the 90s, The X-Files. They call me Spooky. Spooky Mulder. I'm the key figure in an ongoing government charade. A plot to conceal the truth about the existence of extraterrestrials. Flash forward a few decades later. In December 2017, the New York Times published a report detailing how the Defense Department had spent about $22 million over five years on a program keeping tabs on unidentified aerial phenomena. The report also says the Pentagon was storing metal alloys from those UFOs in Las Vegas. I was like, I told you so. Like, everyone who made fun of me for this, you're wrong, and it's now in the paper of record. But people didn't freak out as much as Haney expected. The Pentagon's UFO program was swallowed into the breaking news black hole. It just feels low maybe on some people's list of pressing concerns because it's literally about life outside of Earth. And, and, you know, maybe people are like, I've got enough to worry about on this planet, let alone other ones. Unlike the Roswell days, the possibility of extraterrestrial life no longer grabs headlines. It's practically mainstream science. NASA has a goal to answer the question, are we alone? Tom Barclay is a research scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. You know, a government agency, which are often thought of as fairly conservative and staid, can have this goal of answering the question if there's life beyond our solar system. Barclay studies exoplanets, planets that orbit a star outside our solar system. Astronomers have now identified roughly 3,500 exoplanets. We've just launched the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, known as TESS. One, zero. Liftoff, the SpaceX Falcon 9 carrying TESS, a planet hunting spacecraft that will search for new worlds beyond our solar system. TESS is going to do a survey of the nearest and brightest stars, looking for planets around them. He expects to find extraterrestrials before the end of his lifetime. Some don't buy it, but people at least take the claim seriously now. Even a decade ago, you know, if someone asked you what you're interested in and you said searching for life or searching for aliens or searching for ET, people would frown at you. You'd kind of get dismissed. People would, some people would even get angry at you because you're not doing real science. Now that's gone. As for UFOs, he's skeptical the government is hiding details about flying objects piloted by aliens. Primarily because nobody can keep a secret. I just have a hard time believing that so many people who've seen things could all be wrong. And that's where Katie Haney, the writer, and Thomas Barkley, the scientist, part ways. America's flying saucer phase may be fizzling out, but Haney is okay with that. You know, I say that I want proof, but I'm not sure that I actually do. I I might prefer to have this special thing that only some people believe in and kind of keep it as my fun, personal research hobby than to have it be just common, mainstream, accepted science. So in some ways... Feeling somewhat alone among Earthlings isn't all that bad when it seems like aliens are closer to home. E.T. Home phone. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed. Thanks for that interview with E.T., Holly, and (laughs) that tour of the history of the search for extraterrestrial life. I'm Ken Taylor. With me is my Stanford colleague, Josh Landy. And today we're asking about life beyond Earth. Are we alone in the universe? 
We're joined now by Paul Davies, professor of physics at Arizona State University. And he's the author of The Eerie Silence, Renewing Our Search for Alien Intelligence. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Paul. Thank you for inviting me. So, Paul, let me, let's start. But I want to know how you first got interested in this search for life out there. Crop circles, Illuminati, were you abducted, or was it something else? Oh, it goes way back to my youth. So I grew up in London in the UK uh, in the post-war years, and uh, <clears throat> a deep cultural experience that anybody uh, of my age uh, uh, that lived in Britain at that time uh, would appreciate uh, was a TV series uh, called uh, Quatermass. Oh, yes. And uh, it left a very deep impression on a lot of people. It was very scary. And uh, there were two or there were three uh, series in the end. And it was all about, you know, the menace uh, from space. It uh, terrified me, but also fascinated me. And so from a very young age, I was interested in the stars, in the possibility of life beyond Earth. And in my teens, there was a lot of this UFO stuff, which you've just been discussing on your program, uh, the so-called flying saucers. And I became really fascinated, so fascinated, I actually investigated a few of the cases. And I got to know uh, Alan Hynek, who was the uh, US Air Force Project Blue Book uh, consultant astronomer. I wow, so, so, home. so in these conversations, uh, did what did you end up deciding? So, you know, we're going to get to the philosophical issues in a minute, but I just want to ask you, you know, in all these, in all your investigations, did you, did you end up thinking that it's likely there's an intelligent life out there? Well, you see, over the years, I have changed my mind. So ah. uh, I started out thinking that these reports were pretty sensational. There were so many of them. But then when I began investigating my own and I found that I could explain the reports quite easily, including some movie films that I had uh, no difficulty in identifying what the objects were, I uh, became more skeptical. And then uh, I became, uh, once I became a scientist, my interest was much more in the real science aspect So that's that's a qu let's focus on that question really briefly. Just from a scientific perspective, forget about the UFO sightings and all that. From a scientific perspective, what's our current best thought as a scientist of whether there is intelligent life or any kind of life out there somewhere or not? What If you had to just like place a bet on right. the basis of your scientific knowledge, where would you place the bet but, briefly? But, but people... People ask me this all the time, and it's impossible to place a bet because we have no way of computing the odds that there is any life out there. The big sticking point is the transition from non-life to life. We don't know how it happened, uh, and if you don't know what the mechanism was, you can't estimate the odds. It's just completely unknown. You don't have any so, kind of like what philosophers call subjective probability. I mean, there's the objective <laughs> probability, but you don't have yeah. any like degree of belief one way or the other. I mean, I, I uh, read that the odds of, of, of random particles forming DNA is something like 10 to the 40,000. Yes, 000, but that's guess, like, right? Right. I'm just wondering if you have any degree of belief that, the, I mean, I think there must be, but that's just a degree of belief. You don't have any degree of belief? Well, now, hold on, hold on, hold on. See, I, I'm a scientist, and so belief doesn't come into it. Uh, I go on the evidence, and you can only deal with uh, numbers. You're asking me for a probability uh, when you have some idea of what these numbers represent. We, Because we don't know, uh, let, let me just say that if life formed just by the random shuffling of molecules, and I guess it was Josh, Josh just said that the odds are stupendously far against. So the only way that 
life is going to pop up readily on Earth-like planets is if there's some deep principle of physics or uh, chemistry or something uh, that coaxes matter into life against those raw odds. Now, if there is such a principle, we haven't found it. Okay, we'll take this up in, in much greater detail as we go along. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're asking what the existence of other life in the universe would mean for us Earthlings. Our guest is Paul Davies from Arizona State University. Do you care whether we are alone in the universe? Would the discovery that there are untold numbers of inhabited planets in our galaxy blow your mind? Would it leave you cold? Or would it depress you by revealing the cosmic insignificance of all things human? Probing the allure of alien life, plus your calls and emails when Philosophy Talk continues. If there is a star man who'd like to come to meet us, would that really blow your mind? I'm Ken Taylor. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy, and we're asking what life among the stars would mean for life here on Earth. Our guest is Paul Davies from Arizona State University, author of The Eerie Silence. Now, Paul, earlier uh, Josh and I were having a little debate. I claim that the discovery of alien life, any kind of life, from microbes to mice to little green men, and maybe especially little green men, would be one of the most significant discoveries in all of human history, right up there with Newton's discovery of gravity, uh, Copernicus, Darwin. It would be way, way up there. Josh seemed to believe it would be of no great practical significance, however it ranked in the pan of these discoveries. What do, what do you think? Well, I think I'm with you. I think it would be one of the greatest discoveries of all time, not necessarily because there would be any uh, practical things flowing from it uh, or that there would be sort of instant disruption, but because over the decades and the centuries it would seep into the way we see ourselves and our place in nature. And I think the comparison with, say, Copernicus or Darwin is entirely apt. Uh, at the time, it didn't really change the price of beer, but, uh, uh, you know, over the years, I mean, it colors everything we think about ourselves and, and what we're doing. Yeah, let's explore that a little bit. I mean, take me, I mean, Josh kind of said in the opening, and he's kind of right about that, that uh, in a in a way, cosmology's already done its work on us. It's already shown us that uh, contrary to what the ancients thought, we're not at the center of the universe. We're one planet around one star in a galaxy that's teeming with stars, and now we know probably teeming with planets in a universe that's teeming with galaxies. So we already know we're kind of small potatoes. So what would the discovery add of life? you know, microbial life, animal, plant life, animal. What would the discovery of life add to that? I've got a particular point of view here, which seems to be out of step with a lot of my colleagues, uh, that uh, because we, uh, we don't know the chances that non-life will turn into life, uh, and that if you just do it by the raw odds, uh, it looks like it's very unlikely. Uh, if it transpires that life does pop up readily uh, all around the universe, if it's teeming with it, then that to me suggests a deep uh, life principle, something that's embedded in the great cosmic scheme of things in a very fundamental way. If life is just life on Earth is just a freak, 
then that somehow robs our own existence of significance. Uh, whereas if we are um, players in a great cosmic drama uh, and not just an aberration, then uh, it, that would make me feel at home in the universe. So wait a minute. So you're kind of inverting what a lot of people think. I mean, J Josh gave us the idea. Look, we already know we're just a small thing in an insignificant life with discovery of life. You were saying no. The discovery that the life teems with universe means that the universe just like creates life, and we're part of this great cosmic creation of all the different possible life forms that life that the universe could create. That's kind of a cool yeah, thought. Yeah, that, am I got that, it right? That, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Because you see, people used to think that life was a miracle. The origin of life uh, was uh, some sort of divine uh, intervention. Uh, if you don't believe that, and most people I know don't, they think it was a natural process, then it's down to, uh, is this a very likely natural process embedded in the grand law-like scheme of the universe, or is it just a freak? And if it's a freak, then uh, it just means that we're, we're nothing special. Whereas if we're part of this great march of uh, you know, from matter to life to mind, then that's very deeply inspiring in my view. It is deeply inspiring, because I was thinking about this. In one way, a, a lifeless universe or a life in which only us exists, especially only us as conscious beings exist, would be like a waste of a universe. Because yeah, what, you, you, think of of the, you could think of the emergence of consciousness from the natural processes of the universe as the universe organizing itself to contemplate itself. And if it did that right. at every corner of its being, or many, many corners of its being, it's like the universe is evolving to be conscious of itself. And that right. sounds really cool and uplifting. I mean, that was Schopenhauer's view and the view of some other philosophers, right? That the universe is the, the mirror of the will, allowing it to see itself, right? So the, but, but maybe, but still, okay. So let, look, I was giving Ken a hard time earlier. I, I would be, my mind would be totally blown if it turned out there was <laughs> extraterrestrial intelligent life. But why not say this? The universe needs some beings as a kind of mirror, right? In order to see itself. But why us? I mean, why, why many planets filled with life? Why, why, isn't one enough, why isn't it enough that there are you know, Klingons, for example, through whom the universe can see itself? Right. I, I mean, I don't think there's anything special about, uh, about Homo sapiens and maybe not even about DNA. Uh, I, I think if there is life throughout the universe, uh, it may well have d different chemical forms. Uh, and certainly by the time you get to uh, intelligent life or cultural uh, civilizations or whatever you want to call it, uh, then there would be a, a lot of variety. I, I, you know, I don't think there's anything special about human beings. But it does sound, I agree with both of you that it would be extraordinarily exciting and, and inspiring. But I also think, uh, wouldn't it also perhaps change the way we think about Darwinism? I mean, would, wouldn't that, infl you know, wouldn't the discovery, of, yes. if, you, if you're right, wouldn't that affect the way we think about? Yes, yes, um, that's exactly right. Uh, so there is a sort of subtext that runs through the whole of the uh, SETI program which is uh, at, uh, what philosophers call teleology, uh, that there is um, uh, a, a evolution towards some sort of end goal, some final state, uh, and this belief that uh, matter is sort of striving to become living, and li uh, living matter, once it gets going, is striving to become intelligent. That's very against the general view of Darwinism. Uh, so if you're a, 
a hard-nosed Darwinist, you would say just because there's microbes on a planet doesn't mean if you come back a few billion years later there'll be uh, radio telescopes. So if we well, meet wait, wait, ET, we get teleology back. Well, I, mean, I, I think that's too quick, you okay. guys. I'm, one of def- <laughs> I'm a hard-nosed Darwinist. I think I am anyway. I don't think evolution has a direction, but it's true. The, the, the question is, I mean, one of the things that fascinates me, for, I, agree, I agree with Paul that we don't, I understand, I'm bowing to Paul's authority, and I know other people say that we don't know how life emerges, but we do know how once it emerges, it, it walks through the space of possibilities, through random right. mutation and, and, uh, and, and selection. And, right. and it would be cool, it would be utterly cool, given a million or a billion trials of this thing on a different planet, our, our understanding of the possibilities of evolution would radically change. How frequently does it walk this way rather than that? But that doesn't mean we'd have to abandon Darwinism, even if we saw that across all this configuration space, there were lots of ones in which uh, intelligent life emerged, some in which it got snuffed out quick. You know, I mean, that wouldn't change it. Uh, that wouldn't have to challenge Darwinism. What do you think, Paul? I, I tell you the way that I like to put this. So uh, if we imagine other planets with life, there are certain things that have evolved many times independently on Earth, like uh, eyes, for example, or wings. Uh, these things have obvious utility and we would expect to see them uh, occurring elsewhere but then you can take the other extreme like the elephant's trunk and you think well would we expect to see trunk-like beings elsewhere and you'd say no that's just a quirk and so then when it comes to intelligence is that more wing-like or is it more trunk-like and the truth is on earth uh, when we look at uh, true intelligence by which i mean uh, radio telescope building type intelligence uh, it's evolved only once even though there have been many many opportunities for it to happen and so it looks like the emergence of intelligence is going to be uh, pretty unusual and so if you believe that there's going to be a lot of intelligence out there in the universe then you have to believe that there is more to it than just a random walk through the possibility space. Right, right. So these are, as they say, empirical questions. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about the question, are we alone? And we'd love to have you join this conversation. Gail from Berkeley is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk. Gail, what's your comment or question? Well, I think we've taken a slightly different direction, but my question was, uh, we're looking for a needle in a haystack of space, but that's multiplied by a needle in a haystack of time. Yes, so uh, it's, it seems highly unlikely that we're going to find anything. Uh, that's a really good point. We are looking two coordinated uh, needles in the haystack, Paul. What, what, doesn't that make this problem even harder? Yes, when a lot of people think about, uh, for example, we were talking about UFOs earlier and alien visitation and so on, uh, somehow all of this is uh, couched in this tiny sliver of uh, history during which humans have been on this planet. People are talking about, was uh, Earth visited, you know, 2,000 years ago? Well, it's been here four and a half billion years, and there were planets around long before Earth even existed. Uh, If there was going to be some alien visitation, there's absolutely no reason that they should show up just at the time that we start getting interested in the subject. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's actually an interesting question. I've been thinking, you know, we're, we're very interested now in the notion of aliens. Do you think... I mean, is is it a coincidence, or do you think there's something about the modern world that makes you know? Could could the whole question of alien life be a repository for our modern fears, concerns? It goes way needs? back, though. It goes way back in the history of thinking about this stuff. Uh, the the Greek uh, 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 
atomists uh, believe right, that they're right. Right, yeah. But anyway, what do you think, Paul? Uh, yeah, so uh, it's certainly true that in ancient Greece they came up with a, a sound reason why we might not be alone, uh, and that is that if atoms can come together in the particular combination of living things here on Earth, uh, and if there are atoms scattered throughout an infinite universe, it's going to happen somewhere else as well. And so that was a sort of general argument. Uh, but I, I think what is going on here, and the reason for the deep fascination that people have about uh, beings from space or out there in space, uh, it it is one of these um, fundamental things that, uh, that humans uh, have a fear of, but a fascination with the unknown. And in the past, all this was couched in the language of, uh, of ghosts and spirits and demons and, uh, and so forth. And if you uh, read these ancient texts uh, about visitation, it was, uh, th this was vi visitation by um, the, these other sorts of beings, but, but now we've got this technological overlay and we describe it in terms of spacecraft and uh, Paul, is there, green men. Paul, there's something else though about now. Uh, I think, and this is addressed to you as a scientist. I mean, when I was, I've been interested in this stuff my whole life since I was a kid. I just find it really fascinating. I remember that there was a time when people were wondering whether planetary formation was a, 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 a odd thing right. or was or was ubiquitous. It seems that now it's pretty clear that uh, that the galaxy uh, planets are formed. I don't know if ubiquitously, but pretty regularly. And once you start thinking about how many opportunities there are for planets to be formed, it, it becomes like the question just becomes like, okay, how many life-bearing planets? You know, how many planets such that they're not burning to a crisp or not frigidly cold out there out there? That just seems like a natural question at this moment. There's no doubt that there's a stupendous amount of real estate out there on which life uh, might emerge, which which could host life, at least as we know it. But <clears throat> although those numbers seem big, and I'll give you the number, within the volume of our universe that we can in principle access, it's probably about 10 to the 23, power 23, that's 1 followed by 23 zeros. Wow, not bad. That's a very big number. But now, uh, weighed against that are the odds that... Uh, molecules will shuffle themselves into some sort of living thing. Uh, and the odds uh, against that are much, much bigger numbers. And so uh, if there's only, uh, say, a one in a trillion trillion chance that any given Earth-like planet uh, is going to spawn life, then uh, that 10 to the power 23, you know, is already beaten. So uh, we could be the only only planet in the entire universe that we can see that would have life on it. I hope that's not, not the case. I'd love to believe the universe is teeming with life, but the scientist in me urges caution. Judith from Oakland's on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Judith. What's your uh, comment or question? Hi. My comment is just that uh, ever since I was a, a kid in Catholic school convinced that, you know, God on his throne would be there when we died and we could ask questions, my question was always going to be, is there life on other planets? I think it would be totally cool if we discovered it, but my fear is that we would react to the other no better than we react to others of our own species. And I would hope that by the time we encounter, we would 
have developed more openness and curiosity. Right, and they might react to us the way we <laughs> react to other things, and they might have more power. So, Paul, what do you think of that? Are we ready to meet E.T.? Is E.T. ready to meet us? Uh, I, I take the point of view that the chances of a physical encounter between us and an alien species are, is so small it's not worth worrying about. However, uh, we may gain evidence that we're not alone from signs of alien technology. It doesn't have to be a message uh, like the traditional SETI. I don't have to have somebody beaming messages at us. It may be we can stumble across something uh, and it uh, may not be radio, it may be some sort of physical structure or something that we, uh, we, we don't know what it is, uh, and we're not in contact with that civilization, but we can say uh, that we have uh, overwhelming evidence of non-human technology out there in the universe. And so we, clearly we are not alone, but beyond that we can't say very much. So I don't think we're ever going to be faced with that uh, sort of Christopher Columbus moment uh, uh, or the... Uh, you know, little green men on the White House lawn. I just don't think that that's a realistic scenario. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're thinking about intelligent life beyond our planet with Paul Davies from Arizona State University. In our final segment, we'll ask how much effort we should put into trying to find out whether there is life out there. Should we invest more of our resources into the search for extraterrestrial life or use them trying to improve life down here on this planet, the only one that we know to be inhabited? Is the search for life worth the effort? When Philosophy Talk continues. Just didn't care to stay. No, no. Said it's too peculiar here. Headed for the stratosphere and quickly flew away. What would intelligent beings from beyond our solar system think of life here on Earth? I'm Ken Taylor, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. Our guest is Paul Davies from Arizona State University. And we are thinking about what it would mean if we weren't alone in the universe. And we've got a caller, Anthony, on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Anthony, from San Francisco. What's your uh, comment or question? A um, couple of questions. Um, one is, why do so many scientists who otherwise understand quantitative reasoning, let their enthusiasm for the possibility of extraterrestrial life become a certainty that it must exist. And the other question is, why are we so fascinated with life outside of Earth when we're simultaneously extinguishing so much life here on Earth? Many species that we haven't even understood yet. Uh, thanks for the question. And I didn't hear Paul. I didn't hear you say, expressing any certainty. I heard uh, you're expressing uh, a great deal of uh, uh, caution. And uh, Yeah, I'm, I'm with the caller there because during my career, I explained how I was a great enthusiasm for all this stuff uh, back in the 60s when I was a student. And you might as well have professed an interest in looking for fairies. Everybody thought this was crackpot stuff. There's no possibility of there being any life beyond Earth. The standard view uh, was summed up, I think, by Francis Crick, uh, who said that life seems almost a miracle, so many of the conditions necessary for it to get going. That was the view. And then 20 years later, the pendulum had swung, and everybody's falling over themselves to say the universe is so vast, there has to be life out there somewhere, there's nothing special about life, it's teeming with it. That This extraordinary certainty uh, has taken over from the extraordinary skepticism. 
And because I'm a contrarian sort of fellow, uh, I've swung the other way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because you seem like a pretty pleasant fellow. (laughs) (laughs) But but Anthony raised an interesting question about the the species here on Earth. I mean, uh, the philosopher Peter Godfrey Smith has this lovely book about the octopus. And he says, you know, the octopus may be the closest we'll ever get to meeting extra, you know, a different form, at least, of consciousness, right? It's, a, it's not, obviously, it's not alien life, um, but it's evolved through a very different route. Could, could you get some of the results you're interested in just by exploring other species here on Earth? Oh, well, people do, and there's uh, a long tradition within the SETI community of looking, for example, at dolphins and attempts to communicate with dolphins and, and, uh, and to understand... Um, other languages not only uh, can we communicate but can we somehow quantify the information exchange uh, and so there is that that, that interest in it uh, but the caller was perfectly right you know we're destroying species like crazy here uh, yet we've got this fascination for for life elsewhere I want to say something though I want to say something and I, I think you agree with me I think Josh agrees with me I don't. It's not so much just certainty that there must be, but I just think, gosh, this is like one of the grandest experiments imaginable. That is, yeah. if we could find, if we could, if this search for uh, extra planet, extraterrestrial planets gives us a bunch of Earth-like planets in the Goldilocks zones, and if we could determine which and how many of them have life or had life, it's just one of the grandest laboratories ever imaginable and I think human curiosity wants to be satisfied and I don't want to lose that yeah we want to solve practical problems and all that stuff but the thing that really really drives human being has driven all kinds of things is just bare curiosity unrestrained curiosity and the and the and the universe and the galaxy gives us this amazing set of laboratories to see how rare life is and we don't just have to do a priori speculation I mean don't you think that's right there's something deeply you know, gripping? Well, you don't have to convince me. I've made a career in science because I'm deeply fascinated by uh, the, the universe in all its manifestations, the origin of the universe, the origin of life, the origin of consciousness. These are, are things that have fascinated me since I was a child, and they still fascinate me. So I think if we can't devote some small fraction of our resources to exploring these grand questions, then Uh, it says something uh, very bad about the human spirit. I I believe we should be doing it. And in terms of the resources deployed, you know, people often say, should we be wasting money on this stuff? Well, the first thing to point out is that when it comes to SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, almost all of that is privately funded. This uh, isn't, uh, it's not taxpayer dollars. But but suppose that you did have to convince uh, a Congress or something to, to fund more of this because you thought, you know, you're hot on the trail of these great discoveries. Uh, what, would you, what would you say to convince the general public and their representatives to invest more? I mean, give me your, your, your killer argument. Uh, well, you see, I always appeal to uh, people's higher sensibilities that human beings are curious about their world. Uh, we, we have the great world religions. We build cathedrals and things like that. You think, well, you know what? What does that do for the GDP? And what's it's uh, you know complete waste of resources, and yet it people find it uplifting and important uh, part of their lives. Uh, and I see the quest for uh, answering the question, "Are we alone?" as falling into the same category that, that you look back through through history and you think 
take something like Stonehenge, the huge resources that were devoted to building this thing, and it had no practical significance at all. So I think I, I would appeal to that. It's to uh, uh, innate, uh, uh, not just curiosity, but wanting to uh, position ourselves in a, in a greater scheme of things. So it's a, it's a, it's a quasi-religious quest. I have to be honest about that. I, I get you. We've got another Paul. Paul in Oakland is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Paul. What's your comment or question? Hey, good morning. Um, well, I think it's fine and fun to poke around for life elsewhere, but I think it's morally healthier for the sake of our day-to-day -day behavior to assume that we're we're the whole ball game, and uh, that this is where evolution has taken life and taken hold. Why so? Why is it morally uh, preferable? Because uh, there's a preciousness to it. It's not like we can throw this away in, in any sense whatsoever. It should motivate us. Well, I mean, life itself should motivate us to take care of ourselves and take care of business. And there's, no, there's no planet B. <laughs> no, no, right. Thank, thanks for the thanks for the comment, Paul. I think Paul's right about that. Right. Yes. That is, we life is precious. Yeah. It's also fragile. I mean, a planet is a fragile thing. Right. A meteor. You know how many times the uh, the in the history of the Earth, the life has been it's almost wiped clean, and evolution has had to restart. I think it's like five or six, six mass extinctions. So yeah, life is precious, and human life is precious. It can be gone in an instant. But I don't think that changes the importance of the search for extraterrestrial life. What do you think, Paul? This Paul? Uh, yeah, I, I, I entirely agree that we've got to look after our own planet. Uh, if we could be certain that this was the only one with life, then uh, maybe uh, people would feel they, they should do that. But of course, we, you can't prove a negative. We might search for a million years and not find anything, but that doesn't prove that we're alone. So I think uh, we have to look after our planet. I'm uh, strongly in support of that. Uh, but that doesn't prevent us from being fascinated by the questions we've been talking about. I agree. I just want to come back to something you were saying a moment ago about it being a kind of quasi-religious quest. I really liked your way of thinking about this because, you know, a lot of people think that uh, if there were extraterrestrial life that would pose a problem for certain forms of enchantment, right? It would. I mean, so Kepler had that line, right? How could how could everything be for human yeah. beings' sake if, if there were other worlds? But, but couldn't we see, turn that on its head and say that, you know, the discovery of extraterrestrial life and intelligence would form a, a kind of new, a secular form of wonder, of mystery, of revelation? It would be yeah, totally enchanting. What about God gave his only begotten son, you know, his only begotten son? What about that? So though? it might be a problem. What do you think, Paul? Is it a problem for particular religious beliefs? Yes, I, I think it's a problem, particularly for Christians. Uh, and I keep putting this out there. I've been to meetings at the Vatican. I uh, know a lot of Jesuit astronomers. I love to debate this point with them. Um, there, there's a lot of slippery uh, thinking around this. And uh, the best way of summarizing it is that Christianity is uh, a religion uh, which is based on salvation. Uh, the, the architect of the universe took on human flesh to save humankind. Uh, and you might say, well, who's included in that? Is that the, what about the Neanderthals or the Denisovans? Uh, and then you come onto the, you know, the octopuses or the, uh, the dolphins. Uh, do they get to be saved? And no, it's a species-specific uh, religion, which has always been uh, problematic, I think. Uh, and now, particularly as we understand what the notion of species means, you know, just how many uh, ba base pair changes to your DNA uh, can happen, uh, before you fall out of the category of those that can be saved. You know, it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And 
back in the uh, already in the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, theologians, Christian theologians, grappled with this idea that if there are advanced alien beings, uh, then that are not just maybe scientifically or technologically more advanced than us, but in some sense spiritually too. These would be like saintly beings. Are they not to be saved? Maybe they don't need uh, salvation. They, or and well, maybe, they, uh, they say they, maybe they stayed in their Garden of Eden and right. didn't wander out. We're, we're, we're the only flawed uh, species. Right. Or, in the and this universe. is actually my, my favorite move in this debate, or God incarnated himself in a Vulcan. Right, in a Klingon. Right? So in, God gave his only right. begotten human son. Correct, <laughs> <You're> right. exactly. <laughs> right, but, but, it, but it, it, it's, it really takes on a type of absurd aspect if this uh, is repeated all around the universe. So uh, I, I think this is... Maybe, but um, wouldn't Leibniz say, look, it's, it's, even, it's even better if God, you know, if, if, if some life is good, more life is better. It's, it's for the greater glory of God if there's life. Right, right, right. And, and, I, and I don't think... It's a problem, really, for the other world religions, except they they were all, I mean, the great world, not the modern ones, but the great world religions uh, were all put together at a time when people didn't have a full understanding of the nature of the earth or the universe or the nature of life, you know, in the pre-scientific era. We, we see it very differently now, and, and I feel that the time has come to move on, uh, that we can respect those. Uh, uh, scriptures and, and religious traditions, but we really need to design something uplifting for the modern age uh, thor that's thoroughly scientific, uh, but caters for people's yearning to feel they belong to something bigger than themselves. So, right. so uh, Paul, on that note, I'm going to thank you for joining. This has been a really otherworldly, uplifting, inspiring conversation. You've been a great guest. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Our guest has been Paul Davies, professor of physics at Arizona State University, author of The Eerie Silence, Renewing Our Search for Alien Intelligence. So, Josh, got a last closing thought for uh, us? Well, here? look, I mean, look, I was giving you a hard time earlier, but I, I, I would, my mind would be completely blown. I think it would be enchanting, assuming that things went well, obviously. Yeah. But I think it would be enchanting, not disenchanting. I also think, you know, it would give us an opportunity to think of ourselves as connected with other human beings in a profound way, rather than insisting always on our differences. I belong to this nation or whatever right. it is. We're, you know, we're, we're together right, in this Right, exactly. Project. The planetary. That's like in Star Trek. You can't be Star Trek. You can't be part of the Federation if you don't have planetary governance. Exactly. Right, if you're still a divided tribal people, you can't be part of the Federation. Right. So, yeah, I, I agree. It would be re-enchanting. It would change the nature of religion. It would, yes. it would say, it's not a waste. The universe is not wasted because there's all these conscious beings to contemplate it. And when one goes out of existence, another comes along. So it would be a glorious And maybe thing. there's an inbuilt person. Purpose, an inbuilt trajectory. Well, that's a little bit much. That's a little <laughs> bit much. This conversation continues at Philosopher's Corner at our online community of thinkers where our motto is cogito ergo blago, I think, therefore I blog. You can also become a partner in that community by visiting our website, philosophytalk.org. And if you have a question that wasn't addressed in today's show, we'd love to hear from you. Send it to us at comments at philosophytalk.org, and we may feature it on the blog. Now a man who regularly breaks the speed of light, or at least the speed of sound, it's Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes, science may take the fifth about life beyond our sad little orb, but in pop culture it's been a done deal for ages. The spot full of space aliens used to be occupied by gods, ghosts, fairy folk, by demons. Then came the 20th century. Mansplaining experts through Darwin, Freud, and Marx at us, but the whole world went kerfluey. Economic collapse, the baby steps of globalism, and two world wars coincided with the spread of radio, movies, magazines, and... Paperback books, put them in your pocket, gather your nameless dread, and go. 
Amazing Stories magazines published Isaac Asimov's first story, but in 1943 also gave birth to the Alien Encounter testimonial. Author Richard Shaver was working at a factory when his welding gun gave him the ability to read people's minds, okay? He learned that a race of highly evolved entities once lived here in massive caverns, then left Earth for another world, leaving behind their diseased, degenerate cannibal offspring called the Daros. Basically, they were Morlocks, if you remember them. The Daros also liked to taunt humans, like gremlins in a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Anyway, the Daros stories were regarded as fact by the kind of people who were looking to believe in this kind of thing. Then, after World War II, which freaked people out in ways we're still dealing with, a pilot saw a UFO and described the way it flew as being like a saucer skipping over water. This misunderstanding gave us flying saucers, and soon they entered the realm, then new, now long familiar, of things the government doesn't want us to know about. The 50s gave us two different alien scenarios. In one, aliens were tall, blonde, Nordic visitors who wanted to give us the secrets of the universe. Angels, really, is what they were, with spaceships instead of wings. They had all the secrets to give us. Space travel, eternal youth, sturdy, stylish, well-fitting shoes. But we had to prove our worth by getting rid of atomic bombs. Did we? No. In the other scenario, aliens were out to get us, invading us, taking over our bodies, little green men coming after us with ray guns like Marvin the Martian and Daffy Duck cartoons. Then a couple in New Hampshire, Betty and Barney Hill, had an encounter with aliens that they forgot and then remembered under hypnosis. Not green, but little gray men. There followed scores of grays kidnapping us, testing us. The most famous abductee was Whitley Strieber and his book Communion, in which he does not claim that his abductors were actually aliens, but come on, they totally were. This all climaxed to the X-Files, which included little gray humanoids, but then muddied the waters of the clones, bees, cover-ups, and conspiracies until the audience got so confused they stopped watching. Or maybe that was just me. In the meantime, different aliens proliferated. Aliens that dripped acid, aliens that killed us in the jungle, aliens that had epic battles in galaxies far, far away. Aliens have recently fallen off the pop radar, except for Star Wars. The DC and Marvel franchises focus on superheroes beating each other up over imagined slights. And in the actual world, the government released all kinds of UFO documents. In 2013, the government even acknowledged the existence of Area 51, long believed to be the place where we reversed-engineered flying saucers to learn the secrets of noiseless hovering. With so much government transparency, aliens are leaving us alone, replaced by robots, and they're not coming from the future to kill us, like Terminator, no. We're inventing girl robots and then falling in love with them, with her in her, with Ava in Ex Machina, with Joy in Blade Runner 2049, with Maria in Metropolis. Oh, wait, that wasn't another country. And besides, the wench is dead. I gotta go. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of KALW, local public radio San Francisco, and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University. Copyright 2018. Our executive producers are David Demarest and Matt Martin. The senior producer is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Cindy Prince-Baum is our director of marketing. Thanks also to Murrow Kessler, Carola Kreitmeyer, Emily King, Angela Johnston, and Colin Peake. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and from the partners at our online community of thinkers. Support for this episode comes from the Templeton Foundation. The views expressed or misexpressed in this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you too can become a partner in our community of thinkers. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. Agent Mulder, what are his thoughts? Agent Mulder believes we are not alone.